You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. Lecture 5 of Spiritual Beings in the Heavenly Bodies and in the Kingdoms of Nature, Lecture Cycle by Rudolf Steiner. We have come in our studies to the so-called second hierarchy of the spiritual beings. In the last lecture, we described what the human soul must do if it would penetrate to the nature of this second hierarchy. A yet more difficult path leads to a still higher rank of spiritual beings belonging to the first uppermost rank of the hierarchies to which we can attain. It has been emphasized that by means of a special enhancement of the experiences we have in ordinary life, in feelings of sympathy and love, by raising these feelings to the occult path, we may succeed in pouring forth our own being, coming out of ourselves, as it were, and plunging into the being we wish to observe. Note well that the characteristic of this immersion in another consists in extending our own being like tentacles and pouring it into the other being. In so doing, we must, however, always retain our own consciousness. We must be consciously present in our own inner life beside the other being. That is the characteristic feature of the second stage of clairvoyance that has been described. At this second stage, where we feel ourselves one with other beings, we must realize that we ourselves are still there, as it were, beside the other being. But even this last remains of egoistic experience. Let me read that again. But even this last remains of egoistic experience must cease if we wish to ascend to the highest stage of clairvoyance. There must be there we must completely lose the feeling that we exist as a separate being in any one part of the world. We must reach the point not only of pouring ourselves into the other being and standing beside it, retaining our own separate experience, but we must actually feel the foreign being as ourself. We must completely pass out of ourselves and lose the feeling that we are standing beside the other being. If we thus dive down into a foreign being, we succeed in looking upon ourselves as we were previously, as we are in ordinary life, as another being. For example, suppose we as students at the higher stage of clairvoyance plunge down into some being of the kingdom of nature. We do not then look upon this being from within ourselves. We do not merely immerse ourselves in it as in the second stage of clairvoyance. Instead, we know ourselves to be one with this being and we look back upon ourselves from within it. Just as formerly we looked upon a foreign being as outside ourselves, so now, at the higher stage of clairvoyance, we look out from within the foreign being and see ourselves as a foreign being. That is the difference between the second and the higher stages. Only when this third stage is reached do we succeed in perceiving other beings in our spiritual environment besides those of the second and third hierarchies. The spiritual beings of whom we are then aware also belong to three categories. The first category we perceive chiefly when, in the manner described, we plunge down into the being of other human beings or of the higher animals, and by that means educate ourselves. The essential thing is not so much 
what we perceive in other human beings or in the higher animals as that we should educate ourselves by that means and perceive behind the human beings and animals the spirits belonging to one of the categories of the first hierarchy, the spirits of will or, according to Western esotericism, the thrones. For we then perceive beings we cannot describe otherwise than by saying that they do not consist of flesh and blood, nor even of light and air, but of what we can only observe in ourselves when we are conscious that we have a will. Insofar as their lowest substance is concerned, they consist only of will. If we educate ourselves in the manner described and also fix our gaze on the lower animals and their life, or if we plunge into the plant world, considering it not merely according to its gestures or its mimicry as described yesterday, but become one with the plant and from the plant look out upon ourselves, then indeed we attain an experience for which there is no real comparison within the world as we know it. At most, we can attempt to find a comparison for the qualities of those beings to whom we then ascend, the beings of the second hierarchy, excuse me, the beings of the second category of the first hierarchy. If we allow such feelings to work upon our soul as may be aroused by earnest people of great worth, people who have applied the many experiences of their lives to the gaining of wisdom. These are people who, after many applied years of rich experience, have gathered so much wisdom that we say to ourselves, quote, when they express an opinion, it is not their personal will speaking, but that life which they have accumulated for decades, by means of which they have in a certain sense become quite impersonal. Unquote. They make upon us the impression that their wisdom is impersonal and is the blossom and fruit of a mature life. Such persons call forth in us a feeling, though but a faint one, of what influences us from our spiritual environment when we press forward to the stage of clairvoyance of which we must now speak. In Western esotericism, this category of beings is called the cherubim. It is extremely difficult to describe the beings of this higher category. For the higher we ascend, the more impossible does it become to make use of any qualities of ordinary life wherewith to arouse an idea of the loftiness, greatness, and sublimity of the beings of this hierarchy. We can perhaps, to some slight extent, describe the spirits of will the lowest category of the first hierarchy, by saying, quote, we become familiar with will, for will is the lowest substance of which they consist, unquote. But this would be impossible if we were only to regard the will that we encounter in human beings or animals in normal life or ordinary human feelings and thoughts. And it would be impossible to describe the beings of the second hier- hierarchy, Excuse me again, and it would be impossible to describe the beings of the second category of the first hierarchy by what is usually accepted as human thought, feeling, and will. To do so, we must turn to the life of special persons who, in the way described, have built up an overwhelming power of wisdom in their souls. When we realize this wisdom of theirs, we feel somewhat as occultists feel when they stand before the beings we call the cherubim. Wisdom not acquired in decades, as is the wisdom of eminent men, but such wisdom as is gathered in thousands, nay, in millions of years of cosmic growth, this streams toward us in sublime power from the beings we call the cherubim. Still more difficult to describe are those beings called the seraphim, who form the first and highest category of the first hierarchy. 
it would only be possible to gain some idea of the impression the seraphim make upon occult vision if we take the following comparison from life. We will pursue the comparison just made. We will consider a person who for decades has built up experiences that have brought them overwhelming wisdom, and we will imagine that such a wise one speaks from his or her most impersonal life wisdom, that out of this most impersonal wisdom this person's whole being is permeated as if with inner life, so that he or she need say nothing but just appear before us. The wisdom of those decades, that lifelong wisdom, will be apparent in this wise person's countenance, so that his or her look can tell us of the sorrows and experiences of decades, and this look can make such an impression on us that it speaks to us as the world which we experience itself does. If we imagine such a look or imagine that such a wise person does not speak to us in words alone, but that in the tone and in the peculiar coloring of their words they can give us such an impression of all this rich life of experience that we hear in what they say something like an undertone. Let me say that again. If we imagine such a look or imagine that such a wise person does not speak to us in words alone, but that in the tone and in the peculiar coloring of their words they can give us such an impression of all this rich life of experience that we hear in what they say something like an undertone conveying the nature of their experiences, then again we gain something of the feeling that the occultist has when ascending to the seraphim. It is just like a countenance matured by life which tells of the experience of decades or like a phrase which is so expressed that we hear not merely the thoughts but realize, quote, this phrase expressed with resonance has been acquired in pain and by the expression of life. It is no theory. It has been attained by struggles and suffering. It has passed through the battles and victories of life and has sunk into the heart, unquote. If we hear all this as in an undertone, we gain an idea of the impression which trained occultists which trained occultists receive when lifting themselves to the beings we call the seraphim. We might describe the beings of the third hierarchy by saying, what in human beings is perception, is in the beings of the third hierarchy manifestation of self. What in us is inner life or waking consciousness is in them being filled with spirit. The beings of the second hierarchy we might describe by saying, what in the beings of the third hierarchy is manifestation of self is in the beings of the second hierarchy self-realization, self-creation, a stamping of impressions of their own being. What in the beings of the third hierarchy is being filled with spirit is in these beings of the second hierarchy stimulation of life, which consists in severance, in objectifying themselves. Now, what in the beings of the second hierarchy is self-creation, we also encounter in the beings of the first hierarchy, when we look at them with occult vision, but there is a difference. What the beings of the second hierarchy make objective, what they create from themselves, exists only so long as these beings remain connected with their creations. Thus, note well, the beings of the second hierarchy can create something like an image of themselves, but it remains connected with them and cannot be separated from them. The beings of the first hierarchy can also objectify themselves. They can also stamp their own being. 
It is separated from them as in a sort of skin or shell, but it is an impression of their own being. When this is detached from them, however, it continues to exist in the world, though they sever themselves from it. They do not carry their own creations about with them. These creations remain in existence, even if they go away from them. Thus a higher degree of objectivity is attained by them than by the second hierarchy. When the beings of the second hierarchy create, if their creations are not to fall into decay, they must remain connected with them. The creations would become lifeless and disintegrate if they themselves did not remain connected with them. What they create has an independent, objective existence, but only so long as they remain linked with it. On the other hand, what is detached from the beings of the first hierarchy can be disconnected from them and yet remain in existence, self-acting and objective. In the third hierarchy we have manifestation and being filled with spirit. In the second hierarchy we have self-creation and stimulation of life. In the first hierarchy, which consists of the thrones, cherubim and seraphim, we have a form of creation in which the part created is detached. We have there not only self-creation, but world creation. What proceeds from the beings of the first hierarchy is a detached world, such an independent world that this world phenomenon is a fact, even when the beings are no longer there. Now we may ask, what then is the actual life of this first hierarchy? The actual life of this first hierarchy is such that when such objective, independent, detached beings proceed from it, it realizes itself. For the inner condition of consciousness, the inner experience of the beings of the first hierarchy, lies in creation, in forming independent beings. We may say that they contemplate what they create, which becomes a world, and it is not what they look into themselves. But when they look out of themselves upon the world, which is their own creation, that they possess themselves. To create other beings is their inner life. To live in other beings is the inner experience of these beings of the first hierarchy. Creation of worlds is their outer life. Creation of beings is their inner life. In the course of these lectures we have drawn attention to the fact that these various beings of the hierarchies have offspring, beings split off from themselves, which they send down into the kingdoms of nature. And we have learned that the offspring of the third hierarchy are the nature spirits, while the offspring of the second hierarchy are the group souls. The beings of the first hierarchy likewise have offspring split off from them, and as a matter of fact I have already described from a different aspect these beings that are the offspring of the first hierarchy. I described them at the beginning of this course, when we ascended to the so-called spirits of the cycles or rotation of time, the spirits governing and directing what goes on in the kingdoms of nature in rhythmic succession and repetition. The beings of the first hierarchy detach the beings governing the alternation of summer and winter from themselves, so that the plants spring up and fade away again. This is that rhythmical succession through which, for instance, the animals belonging to a certain species have a definite period of life in which they develop from birth to death. Everything, too, which takes place in the kingdom of nature rhythmically and in recapitulation such as day and night, alternations of the year, the four seasons of the year, everything which thus depends upon repeated happenings is regulated by the spirits of the cycles of time, the offspring 
of the beings of the first hierarchy. These spirits of the cycles of time can be described from one aspect, as we did some days ago, and we can now describe them according to their origin, as we have done today. Thus we can comprehensively represent the beings of these three hierarchies as follows. First hierarchy, world creation, creation of beings, spirits of the cycles of time. Second hierarchy, self-creation, stimulation of life, group souls. Third hierarchy, manifestation, being filled with spirit, nature spirits. If we want to proceed further in the task before us, we must now become familiar with the conceptions to which the trained vision of the occultist gradually rises, conceptions which, when one first becomes acquainted with them, are somewhat difficult. Today we will place these concepts and ideas before us. This will enable us, when in the following lectures the whole life and being of the kingdoms of nature and of the heavenly bodies is to appear before us, to accustom ourselves more and more to the form and manner in which the beings described are connected with the kingdoms of nature and with the heavenly bodies. In this way we shall be able to acquire more definite conceptions concerning them. My books, Theosophy, Occult Science, amongst others, describe human beings as they reveal themselves to occult vision. In considering human beings, then, we say first of all that the most external part, the part perceptible to human eyes and senses, is the physical body. Thus we look upon the physical body as the first human principle. The second, the etheric body, we already regard as something supersensible, invisible to the normal consciousness. And the astral body we regard as the third principle. These three principles approximately comprise the human sheaths. Then we rise to yet higher principles. They are of a soul nature. In ordinary life, we regard them as the inner soul life, and just as we speak of a threefold external covering, so can we speak of a threefold soul, the sentient soul, the intellectual or mind soul, and the consciousness soul. These principles of human nature, from the physical body to the consciousness soul, are already present today in every human being. To these may also be added a shining in of the next principle, which we designate the spirit self or, as perhaps some are accustomed to call it, manas. The next principle, which will only really be fully formed in humanity in the future, we call the life spirit, or buddhi. Then comes that which we designate as the actual spirit human, or atma, which is, in fact, the innermost part of human nature, but which, as far as human consciousness today is concerned, is still asleep within us. It will only light up as the real center of consciousness in future earthly days. These principles of human nature are such that we speak of them as separate unities. In a certain sense, the human physical body is one unity, the human etheric body is another, and so likewise are the other principles of human nature. The whole human being is a unity consisting of the union and combined working of these various principles. If we wish to go further, you must picture to yourselves that there are beings so far exalted above human nature that they do not consist of principles that we could call physical body, etheric body, etc., but that the principles of these beings are themselves beings. Thus, while human beings have their individual principles, which we cannot look upon as beings, but merely as separate principles, we must 
ascend to beings possessing no physical body as part of themselves, but who, corresponding with the physical body of the human being, have something which in our study we have called the spirits of form. When we say that there are beings of a higher category, not having a physical body is one of their principles, but having among their principles a being itself, a spirit of form, we may then gain an idea of a being not yet described, but which we will now proceed to describe. If we wish to do this, we must make use of those concepts to which we have risen in the course of these lectures. I have already said that it is difficult to come to these ideas, but you may be able to raise yourselves to such thoughts by means of an analogy. Let us consider a beehive or an anthill. Take the individual entities, the individual bees, in a beehive. It is clear that the beehive possesses a a real common spirit, a real collective being, and that this being has its various parts in the individual bees, just as you have yours in your separate principles. Here you have an analogy for still higher beings than those we have already considered, beings having among their principles nothing that we can compare with the human physical body, but instead something we must designate as itself a being, a spirit, of form. Just as we live in our physical body, so does the life of those beings of a higher eminence consist in their having the spirits of form, or a spirit of form, as their lowest principle. Then instead of the etheric body we human beings have, these beings have as their second principle spirits of motion. Instead of what is to us our astral body, these beings have a spirit of wisdom. Instead of the sentient soul we as human beings have, these beings have as their fourth principle the thrones or spirits of will. Instead of the intellectual soul, these beings have the cherubim as their fifth principle. And as the sixth is we have the consciousness soul, they have a seraphim. Just as we look up to what we shall only gradually attain in future earthly lives, so do these beings look up to that which towers above the nature of the hierarchies. Just as we speak of our manas, buddhi, atma, or spirit self, life spirit, and spirit human, so, as it were, do these beings look up from their seraphic principle as we out of our consciousness soul to a primal spirituality. Only then have these beings something analogous to our inner spiritual life. It is extremely difficult to arouse concepts within us concerning what exists above the hierarchies as the spiritual nature of the highest spirits themselves. Hence, in course of the evolution of humanity, the various religions and world concepts have, as we might say, with a certain reverent caution, refrained from speaking in the concise concepts pertaining to the sense world of what exists above the hierarchies. In order to call forth such a concept as lives in the soul of the occultist when he looks up to the seraphim, we tried to grasp such means as can only be found in analogy. We considered people with a rich experience of life. We find, however, that even in such persons nothing in their lives can in the very least help one to characterize the Trinity, which, as it were, appears above the seraphim as their highest being, as their manas, buddhi, and atma. Unfortunately, in the course of human evolution, there has been much dispute over the cautious surmises with which the human mind has ventured to approach what is above in the spiritual worlds. Unfortunately, we may say, for it would be much more seemly if the human mind were not to try to describe beings of such sublimity 
with concepts taken from ordinary life, nor by means of all sorts of analogies and comparisons. It would be more seemly for us to desire in deepest reverence to learn ever more fully so that we might be able to form more approximate concepts. The various religions of the world have tried to give approximate concepts of what is above in many significant and speaking ideas, ideas which, to a certain extent, do provide something special in that they reach out beyond individual human life in the external sense world. Naturally, we cannot by means of such ideas describe, even approximately, these exalted beings to whom we refer, but we can, to a certain extent, call up a conception of what is inexpressible and should be veiled in holy mystery. For one ought not to approach these matters with mere human intellectual concepts obtained from the external world. Hence, in the successive religions and conceptions of the world, it was sought to characterize these things approximately and by faint indications. Human beings thus drew near to what is so far above humanity and in its very nature mysterious by an attempt to characterize what lies above, or rather, by giving names to it. The ancient Egyptians have, in their giving of names, made use of the concepts of child or son, father and mother, and so of concepts that rise beyond the individual human being. Christianity endeavored in the succession of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to find a name for this trinity. We may therefore say, in the seventh place we should have to put the Holy Spirit, in the eighth place the Son, and in the ninth the Father. Therefore, when we look up to a being whose highest content disappears as in a spiritual mystery, we can say allusively, Spirit, Son, and Father. And when we look up to such a being with occult vision, we say, just as when we look at the human being externally, regarding the physical body as the lowest principle, so among such beings, if we are to regard them as in any sense analogous, we have before us as their lowest principle the spirit of form, a spirit that gives itself form, a spirit having form. We must therefore look upon what in this being is analogous to or resembles the human physical body as something which has form. Just as we have something of form in this human physical body as the lowest principle, and as in this form, which in truth as we encounter it is obviously maya, there lives a spirit of form, so it appears to us when we direct our gaze into cosmic space and perceive there a planet, Mercury, Venus, Mars, or Jupiter, is the external form of the spirit of form. It is what belongs to the being of whom we have just spoken, as the human physical body belongs to the human being. When we see human beings before us, their form expresses what lives in them as higher principles, etheric body, astral body, sentient soul, and so forth. When we look at a planet, its form expresses to us the work of the spirits of form. Just as behind the human form, behind the physical body, are the etheric body, astral body, sentient soul, and so forth, so behind the planet, belonging to it, are what we know as the spirits of motion, spirits of wisdom, spirits of will, cherubim and seraphim, etc. If we wish to visualize the complete being of a planet in the sense of spiritual science, we must say the planet meets our perception in cosmic space when its physical being, given by the spirit of form, shines forth. 
and it conceals from us, just as we conceal our higher principles from the physical gaze, all that rules within and around it as beings of the higher hierarchies. Thus we rightly imagine such a planet as Mars or Mercury, only when we first of all picture it in its physical form, and then think of it as surrounded and permeated by a spiritual atmosphere stretching out into infinity and having in the physical planet its physical form, the creation of the spirit of form, and as its spiritual environment the beings of the hierarchies. Only when we consider it thus do we conceive of the complete planet as having the physical as a kernel in the center and around it the spiritual sheaths consisting of the beings of the hierarchies. This will be considered in greater detail in the following lectures, but today in order to some extent to indicate the direction of our observations, we may give the following information revealed by occult investigation. We have already pointed out that what we observe as the physical form of the planet is a creation of the spirits of form. The form of our earth is also creation of the spirits of form. Now, with regard to our earth, we know that it is never at rest. We know that the earth is in a state of perpetual inner change and movement. It will be remembered from the description given in the Akashic Chronicle that the external aspect of our earth today is quite different from what it presented, for example, at the time we call the Atlantean Epoch. In this primeval Atlantean Epoch, the surface of the globe of the earth that is today covered by the Atlantic Ocean was a mighty continent, while where Europe, Asia, and Africa are now situated, scarcely any continents were as yet formed. Thus the solid matter, the substance of the earth, as has been transformed by its inner motion. The planet earth is in a continual state of inner motion. Consider, for instance, that what we know today as the island of Haligaland is but a small part of that land which in the ninth and tenth centuries still projected out into the sea. Although the periods during which inner changes alter the Earth's surface are comparatively great, yet without going deeply into these matters, we can all see that our planet is in perpetual inner motion. Indeed, if we do not merely include the solid Earth in the planet, but also the water and the air, then daily life teaches us that the planet is in inner motion. In the formation of clouds and rain, in all the phenomena of atmospheric conditions, in the rise and fall of the water, in all these we see the inner mobility of the planetary substance. That is one life of the planet. Just as the etheric body works in the life of the individual, so do what we designate as the spirits of motion work in the life of the planet. Therefore we may say, the external form of the planet is the creation of the spirits of form. The inner livingness is regulated by the beings we call the spirits of motion. Now to the occultist, such a planet is in every way an actual being, a being regulating what goes on within it according to thought. Not only is what has just been described as inner vitality present in the planet, but the planet as a whole has consciousness, for it is indeed a being. This consciousness, which corresponds to human consciousness, to the lower form of human consciousness, the subconsciousness in the astral body, is regulated in the planet by the spirits of wisdom. We may therefore say, the lowest consciousness of the planet is regulated by the spirits of wisdom. In thus describing the planet, we still refer to the planet itself. We look up to the planet, saying, it has a definite form that corresponds to the spirits of form. It has an inner mobility that corresponds to the spirits of motion. All this 
is permeated by consciousness, which corresponds to the spirits of wisdom. Let us follow the planet further. It passes through space. It has an inner impulse that drives it through space, just as a human being has an inner impulse of will, causing him or her to take steps to walk along in space. What leads the planet through space and governs its movement through space and causes it to revolve around the fixed star corresponds to the spirits of will or the thrones. Now if these spirits of will were to give only the impulse of motion to the planet, every planet would go its own way through the universe. But this is not the case, for every planet acts in conformity with the whole system. The motion is not only so regulated that the planet moves, but it is brought into due order with the whole planetary system. Just as due order is brought, let us say, to a group of people of whom one goes in one direction and another in another to reach a common goal, the movements of the planets are also so arranged that they harmonize. The harmony of movement between one planet and another corresponds to the activity of the cherubim. The regulation of the combined movements of the system is the work of the cherubim. Each planetary system, with its fixed star, which is in a sense the commander-in-chief under the guidance of the cherubim, is again related to the other planetary systems to which other fixed stars belong. These systems mutually arrange their positions in space with due regard to the neighboring systems, just as individual persons agree together, deliberate with one another regarding their common action, just as people found a social system by virtue of this reciprocity, so also there is a reciprocity in the planetary systems. Mutual understanding prevails between one fixed star and another. By this means alone does the cosmos come into existence. That which, so to speak, the planetary systems discuss with one another in cosmic space, in order to become a cosmos, is regulated by the beings we call the seraphim. We have now, as it were, exhausted what we find in human beings as far as the consciousness soul. Just as in human beings we ascend to higher spirit nature, to what alone gives meaning to the whole system up to the consciousness soul, so if we ascend above the seraphim, we come to what we tried to describe today as the highest trinity of cosmic being. We come to that in the universe which governs as the all-pervading divine, threefold divine life. This creates for itself sheaths in the different planetary systems. Just as what lives in human beings as spirit self, life spirit and spirit human, manas, buddhi, atma, creates sheaths in the consciousness soul, intellectual soul, sentient soul, astral, etheric and physical bodies, so do the fixed stars of planetary systems move through space as the bodies of divine beings. Inasmuch as we contemplate the life of the world of stars, we contemplate the bodies of the gods and finally of the divine as such. The end of lecture 5